0: This program is a presentation of UCTV for educational and non-commercial use only.
1: From the campus of the University of California, Davis, this is State of Minds. and thank you for joining us. I'm Shannon Bradley. We'll begin tonight right here at UC Davis with a story on how UC research is helping the California cut flower industry compete with growers from other countries. From there to a warm welcome back to UC students of Japanese descent who were pulled out of school and put into internment camps during World War II. Following that, a trip to the California Delta for a look at what engineers at Berkeley are suggesting to protect this fragile water system and finally a visit to the loft a new hub of nightlife on the campus of uc san diego this is the horticultural greenhouse facility here at uc davis one of several sites where researchers are coming up with strategies to help california's floriculture industry thrive in today's market Plant scientists are teaching growers to become more eco-friendly by using fewer pesticides and improving post-harvest techniques so that flowers grown here outlast those grown abroad. Paul Fotenhauer spent some time visiting growers throughout the state and has this report.
2: California flower growers transform their land into absolute beauty with a fragrance to match. But don't let this idyllic scene lull you into thinking that this is the business for you. Currently, more than 85% of the flowers consumed in the United States come from a foreign country, versus in the 70's it was basically 0%. Growers are fighting to hold on to that last 15% a share that still adds up to a 10 billion dollar a year industry in California. Today the focus is on flowers that South Americans can't grow as well like orchids, lilies and gerberas. The biggest region in the state for growing cut flowers is the Santa Barbara area where Van Wiggerden's Westland Floral is located. How many plants? Yeah, We, we plant about 50,000 plants per acre. They distribute bouquets to stores all across the country. U.S. cut flower producers have one of the smallest profit margins in agriculture. It does not look good for being cut flower producer in the United States. According to Van Wigerden, carnations, chrysanthemums and baby's breath are for the most part no longer grown commercially in the U.S because foreign countries have cheaper labor costs and nearly perfect weather for growing flowers. And we are close to the the, uh, American market that helps us currently to be a viable source still. But we are having difficulty staying profitable. California growers have relied on efficiency and new technology to stay afloat. Perhaps the biggest source of that knowledge is UC Davis, where leading plant scientists are working shoulder to shoulder with a wide range of growers. The California cut flower industry also includes container plants. Here at Half Moon Bay, the Nurseryman's Exchange grows more than 300 varieties of plants for the home and garden. And they say the technological advancements have enabled them to grow stronger plants that last longer. How
3: can we survive without doing the right practices with water? You cannot. How can you survive if you cannot control your pests? You cannot. You know, if you can't grow the plant in a certain amount of time, you will not survive. If you don't have good shelf life for the consumer where they have a good result, you cannot survive. Every penny of production has to be monitored for our success.
2: Both Pearlstein and Van Wigerden owe a sense of gratitude to UC Davis researchers who provide them with tools to deal with such things as insects, viruses and post-harvest challenges. Michael Reed, an environmental horticulturist has been working with industry leaders for more than three decades.
4: So UC Davis has had a
5: strong program in ornamentals and the post-harvest and production and pest management uh, for many years and the industry has really relied on that. Well I think without
3: the work from UC Davis and its team of scientists, I'm not sure that Nursery Men's Exchange would still be in existence as we know it. Yeah and I, I think... You
2: know, Virtually all cut flowers and container plants are grown in massive greenhouses. UC Davis's Heiner Leith says these growing chambers are high-tech. Every factor is controlled with a computer, with sensors, with technology. Flowers grown today are nearly perfect thanks to protected cultivation that these greenhouses provide. With every little tool that we get, we get more power, we get more efficiency, and we bring the price
6: down. We bring the price of production down. So, everything that we can do to help take uncertainty, out of it, to take variability out of it, will be a benefit to the grower and every benefit to a grower is measured in terms of economic benefit.
2: Up to 18,000 bouquets are produced every day on this assembly line at Westland Floral. These bouquets can be purchased from grocery stores for as little as ten dollars. For commercial growers it all begins here, creating a substrate so that the plant can grow quick and healthy. Computers control the soil mixes and add the right combination of minerals to the water.
6: There is no grower right now that is not using the UC system for producing container-grown plants. It is the standard in the world. So we can get every one of these plants to result in a marketable plant of perfect quality. You cannot do that with soil. If you were to put soil in this container, half of these plants would be dead. And substrate
2: is made up of what?
6: This particular substrate is made up of, uh, it has sand in it, it has some redwood sawdust in it, it has some peat moss in it, and it has these proportions at a very engineered uh, set of
2: ratios. Another major challenge for greenhouse production is dealing responsibly with insects any bug seems to get resisted at some point so that just continues to be our challenge to be able to come up with materials that we can uh, do a better job in maintaining our, our pest populations in, in the plants. Almost all commercial growers credit the research work of Michael Perella, a world-renowned UC Davis expert on the development of integrated pest management strategies for ornamental plants.
3: There can be technology developed and we've done a lot of that here to make sure that if they use a pesticide they choose the right one, they use it properly, they monitor the pest properly, and they can integrate the, the uh, pesticide with, with biological control. So the n- end result then is, a re- is an overall reduction in pesticide use and maintaining that high-quality crop that they all want. And Mike Perella has been instrumental in regards to advising us in regards to the identification of the different pests that
2: we have. So we we're actually treating them correctly and getting the, the survival rates that we need. Pearlstein says they are using 10 times less chemicals than 20 years ago. We do that by understanding the environment. It's more of
3: an integrated thing now, Paul, because before you looked at the insect and just treated it. Now we're looking at the environment. Pest management, IPM, is one part of what a grower has to deal with and it's one part of the overall production process so in that context you can not look at IPM or biological control or pesticide application in a vacuum it's got to be done in
2: terms of how it fits into the entire production uh, system for nursery men's exchange in Half Moon Bay using fewer pesticides by having good insects eat bad ones is good for the bottom line because it reduces labor costs meanwhile in Carpinteria Westland Floral has shifted to biological controls the same reason. In Mother Nature, the the beneficial bug will uh, always be the predator of the bad bug, and the bad bug will never become immune to the predator, so it is always going to be something that works for it versus chemical applications. It has been proven in many studies and continuously in our practical applications that if you don't um, uh, rotate your pesticides or have new pesticides available on a regular basis, you will lose the battle. And we have lost the battle numerous times. And that's why beneficial control has become very popular, even though it's costly. One of the most destructive insects that attack Gerberers are leaf miners. Tiny flies that deposit eggs on leaves. If not controlled by parasitic wasps, soft chemicals are used to eliminate hot spots. These sprays do not kill the beneficial insects. Much of the work that Michael Reed has done is improving post-harvest technology. He has devised ways to keep flowers fresh during the long transit runs to stores across the country, such as cooling flowers to nearly 32 degrees, a method to protect flowers from harmful ethylene gas and a computer chip to monitor temperature of flowers during transportation embracing cutting-edge technology has been critical for California flower producers UC Davis researchers are optimistic that continued advances like these will keep California's 10 billion dollar industry in peak bloom reporting from Davis I'm Paul Fotenauer.
1: Graduating from college is a rite of passage that most UC students expect to achieve when they enroll, but for hundreds of Japanese Americans in the 1940s, that was not their fate. Instead of being able to pursue their degrees, they were relocated into internment camps because of the U.S. war with Japan. Well, the University of California is making amends with these former students by awarding them honorary degrees. We hear more now from Larissa Brannan about this belated recognition.
7: My name is Masae Nakamura. My dream all the way through high school was to go to college. I wanted to go to college, and my father had emphasized education as a way to remove some of the discrimination against the Japanese-Americans. So he said, you've got to go to school, go to college. And I I said, I want to go to UCLA if I'm accepted. So that was my dream in in high school. And I was accepted, and I was elated. And in September of 41, I entered uh, UCLA. Just a few months later, on December 7, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And by February of 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed an executive order to authorize the forced relocation and internment of about 120,000 Japanese Americans to war relocation camps. I was... Politically and uh, everything, I was kind of naive. I concentrated on my studies and so I really didn't know what was going on and when when the war broke out I was just confused
5: and uh, I didn't think that I would have to leave school. When the war started we sorta expected something to happen. If you were under 21 you had to get your parents permission to withdraw from Cal. And so I had to get the papers, send it to my dad in Madeira, have him sign it, giving me permission to leave Cal. We left May the 17th. Dad says, remember this date. So they came, the uh, military police came with uh, rifles, bayonets fixed to make sure we moved. Both Nakamura
7: and Inami eventually received degrees from other colleges, but some former UC students never did return to school.
4: So I was in my second year in Davis there when, the, when the war broke out. And uh, I'm a U.S. citizen, I'm American, I was educated and born here. I want to serve, not because I wanted to fight, but I want to prove certain things, loyalty. During the war, uh, I got I got married and I had a family. So I had to have a family raised, so education, I had no chance to finish on. I've gone through the College of Hard Knocks, I think that's, that's education itself. That's, you, you can't learn that in books. If I had a degree, I think I would have made a lot more money, and I, but that's the thing that has. And uh, You have to overlook, overlook a lot of those things. So.
7: But the University of California chose not to overlook the fact that many of their former students were unable to complete their UC degree due to the internment. In July 2009, the UC Board of Regents agreed to grant honorary degrees to these Japanese American students.
8: This whole notion of um, recognizing Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II who were students at the University of California really came up. It came out of a request from one campus, at UCSF to be exact, who had a um, student, uh, Grace Amamiya. They wanted to honor her. And as a result of their request to us uh, here at the Office of the President, we did some research and found that there was a moratorium on honorary degrees and it wasn't something that was easily possible to do.
4: There was a range of options that the task force initially considered, um, options running from just granting a certificate to, uh, to the honorary degree. And it is an honorary degree that has language in Latin that basically means returning justice to the groves of academia. I think for the University of California to give these degrees, it's the right thing to do. And sometimes it's good for the university to do the right thing. These people were part of our academic community as students in 1941 and 1942. That relationship was severed. It was severed by actions by the federal government that Congress and the federal government recognized that the actions taken in 1941-42 against the Japanese people were uh, unjust.
8: This honorary degree, it's one small way that we can um, really respect the students that we serve and to right a wrong in a sense. um take care of some what has been called unfinished business. By virtue of authority vested in me by the Regents of the University of California, I confer upon you the UC Honorary Degree.
7: Last December, about 50 Japanese Americans donned caps and gowns at UC San Francisco, Berkeley, and Davis to receive honorary degrees from the University of California some 70 years after being forced to leave their respective campuses. In addition, family members accepted honorary degrees for former students who could not attend in person or who have since
5: passed away. Of course now getting a degree isn't going to be of much much help to me but uh, the very fact that uh, I'm being recognized for having spent at least three years here and in the middle of the junior year I'm uh, evacuated, forced to leave. It is uh, quite an honor to be given an honorary degree. In fact, someone said, hey, you're going to be class of 2009. I said, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> in Oakland, I'm
7: Larissa Brannon. <laughs> These ceremonies all took
1: place in Northern California. UCLA will be holding a similar ceremony in Los Angeles in May. This floodplain is part of the California Delta, a complex system that delivers water to farms and cities throughout the state. Well, much of the Delta's expansive network of levees is in disrepair, and as a civil engineer from UC Berkeley notes, a lack of coordination among the agencies responsible for the Delta could lead to another Katrina-like catastrophe. Roxanne McCosden explains.
9: By 2100, we expect sea level to be up a minimum of one meter. That means uh, Sacramento is going to become beachfront property. Getting a picture?
0: The graduate students in Professor Bob B's civil engineering class at UC Berkeley are doing more than just the required coursework. They're participating in a major research project B is leading. The four-year study, funded by a $2 million National Science Foundation grant, will examine the all-important system of waterways known as the California Delta. The goal is to help avert the worst consequences of a major short- or long-term disaster. The project is called RESIN, Resilient and Sustainable Infrastructures, a subject Bob B has studied for decades. It says
9: we had a breach and that's where part of the flood water in New Orleans came from.
0: B and his colleagues surveyed the damage from Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans five years ago. Katrina serves as a grave warning about the potential for disaster in California.
9: Uh, we've learned you can't ignore it because if you do I, it will get its
0: The California Delta lies roughly between San Francisco and Sacramento. The entire area was an inland sea until dirt levees were built on the edges of the rivers to create farms on the land in between. The Delta has since become a major resource for California. Its water is pumped out to 25 million Californians and to farms that produce half the nation's produce. And 80 percent of the state's fishery species live or migrate through the Delta. But the levees, also used as roads throughout the Delta, are deteriorating and have caused the farms to sink below sea level. Fresh water has decreased due to drought and other pressures, and fish populations have diminished greatly. To sustain the Delta's resources, B says that what's needed is not new technology, but new ways of thinking. He found that the disastrous aftermath of Katrina was the result of a lack of communication and planning on the part of the many groups that maintain the area's infrastructure.
9: We embrace the philosophy of requisite variety. The variety in the research and the student team had to match the variety of the problem we were addressing. That became the watchword of our project.
0: The study is a huge collaboration, including experts from public and private institutions and professors and students from many campuses. The researchers began to look for an area that would serve as a microcosm for the larger problem. They found Sherman Island in the heart of the Delta. Researchers call Sherman Island a choke point because of the many interests that converge here. Water, energy, telecommunications, environmental protection. Each is maintained by a separate organization, so each has the potential to choke the entire system.
9: Sherman Island jumped out at us immediately. Anybody looking at the map would identify this area as as problematic. This is the levee system in its various colors, showing you the various problems, seepage and earthquake vulnerability. Gas lines going through here, power lines crossing here. Water is seeping into the low areas of the island where it has to be continuously pumped out and when this island floods these areas are going to flood first. Water levels are going to rise to the point where the levee simply is a bathtub.
2: In a minute I'll describe what we're going to do.
0: In this first phase of the study researchers are gathering information about the situation on the ground and the difficulties of successfully coordinating such a vast array of public services.
9: If in fact we lost power here That power would affect our ability to pump natural gas. It's going to affect our ability to power our water systems, our pumping stations likely we lose telecommunications. They run the alarm and control systems, so everybody is in this together. This remnant levee, this used to be a levee. They
0: the research teams looked at levees, water levels, power, gas and communication lines, and even a carbon sequestration test site where trees have been planted to help offset the levels of carbon dioxide in the air here.
2: We can't build things so that they'll stand everything. We have to build things nowadays so that they can bounce back from a shock.
0: Bob B. says California can avoid disaster if enough cooperation can be built into the system, as well as an understanding among policymakers, businesses, and residents that protection will come with more efficient water usage and conservation.
9: There's one message. Manage or be managed.
0: This is Roxanne Makashyan at UC Berkeley. Some UC campuses, like
1: Berkeley, UCLA, Santa Barbara, and here in Davis, have the wonderful amenity of being right next to vibrant urban communities, so finding something to do at night is easy. But in San Diego, that's not the case. UCSD is far from downtown La Jolla, and campus nightlife, well, there wasn't much, but there is now. My friend and colleague, Rachel Bradley, takes us into the loft. It is well
10: after 9 p.m. and a line is forming outside of San Diego's newest venue. Not located downtown or at the beach, the best spot to catch new music and innovative performance is on the campus of UC San Diego. Welcome to The Loft.
11: The Loft is a performance lounge and wine bar on campus here at UC San Diego. The programming of The Loft consists of everything from a rock and roll concert to a student jazz trio to a food tasting, a wine tasting, a chocolate tasting, a film screening, um, an art exhibit opening, you name it, we've
10: um, done it all here. Open for just over a year, The Loft was designed to fill what many saw as a cultural void in student life.
11: The most rewarding part for putting on any show here is just seeing people enjoying themselves. Because I guess UCSD has a reputation of being the University of California for the socially dead. And that's something that we have worked so hard to shake. And I feel that the loft is like the tip of the iceberg for that, just really getting campus life going, getting people excited.
10: The loft is run by a dedicated group of staff and students. From running the soundboard to managing their Twitter feed, they work together to offer a wide variety of events.
11: Basically, I get to do something I love every night and provide that to other people. It's like I get to see a concert every night that I work, I get to meet bands every night that I work, and at the same time, the whole crowd is experiencing that same thing. And you know, there's something kind of beautiful about that because here at The Loft, we have a show like every week there's something, there's something great. It just feels really good to be a part of something like that. I've been fortunate enough that as soon as I got here I was helping out with shows and on any given night that can range from standing out in the front sweeping the venue and making sure people get their alcohol wristbands properly. I i can a lot of for you. If you want me to take you, you can do that too. Okay, just me and Eric back
10: there. Yeah. We just started the street marketing team, and we were really trying to make that connection between the students and the office staff, and the um, loft staff also. So they really get a say in who they really want to see here, what kind of shows. I mean, we just don't produce music shows. If they want to see more comedy acts, then we're going to find some more com- comedic acts to bring here.
11: Yeah, I feel like although we're within University Events Office, and like with the official university logo behind us, like it really is a student production.
10: One thing I love about the Loft is that it's extremely student-friendly. It really caters to our interests. We're always open to input and suggestions from students, even um, this little stage right here is just open up to anybody, like any student org who has um, a performance they want to put on and just get, you know, word about themselves out. One of my friends is a manager here. He's a curator of Luminance it's actually a show that brings Asian-Americans from YouTube. They often like seeing um, covers of songs and he actually gets them to come over here to do live shows. So I
11: on a train the back but I hope that it's you. See, thought... In
4: fact we have a number of students who are doing events that are bringing in different populations of our campus to create the sense of community, and it's been really exciting to see um, that this space has become a place
11: where students feel, again, that there's community.
10: That sense of community also extends to the artists who perform here.
11: I've had artists say, you know, it felt like a real connection between me and the audience. People have said, you know, I can see the person all the way in the back, and that means so much to them as as uh, as an artist. You know, these guys rock festivals. They play to thousands, hundreds of thousands of people even. And so for them to see a room where it's so intimate and so wonderful is big for them, it's big for us.
4: We want the artists to feel like this is part of their creative environment as well. And that when they come here, that this is more than just a venue or a gig where they're playing, but it's a venue where they feel that they have an audience that supports them and encourages and nurtures them, but they also have staff here who make sure that that experience for them is the best experience possible.
10: The Loft isn't just a space for music and nightlife, it is a place where students can feel at home. For lunch, sometimes I'll just study or hang out. Just being in this room, it's just different. It's, um, it's strange to be like on a college campus and just have this available, it's so neat. I don't even like have to go off campus anymore.
11: It's really a place that all students at UCSD can make their own and to continue like just for future generations of students. So I would hope to come back as an alum and uh, see another show here in the future.
10: The lines outside the loft may be long, but a visit inside is well worth the wait. A socially vibrant and artistically engaging student community is just past the ticket counter. This is Rachel Bradley in San Diego
1: that's it for this edition of State of Minds. If you'd like more information on any of the stories you've seen tonight, go to our website at uctv.tv. Before we go, I'd like to thank our friends here at Davis for helping us on this program and you for your interest in the University of California. I'm Shannon Bradley. We'll be back in the spring. Until then, good night.